Before we get the show started, a number of you have asked about supporting what I do here at Monumental. I now have a mechanism on my website for that to occur. Just go to mattministry.com, mattministry.com, and click on the support page. You can make a one-time or recurring support gift. Your financial support provides me the help with resources and, more importantly, time to make more of what you hopefully enjoy. So go to mattministry.com and click support if you'd like to help. Your support is deeply appreciated. And with that, let's get it started. There was a three-word phrase that seems oddly vacant from American discourse today. It's a necessary but all-too-quickly-evaporating phrase. We could speculate for hours on why it is so. For now, let us simply resolve that it is so. Back in 2000, at the Summer Olympics, Marion Jones became the first woman to win five medals at one Olympic Games. She became the darling of America, a beautiful, engaging, intelligent athlete who was the best in the world. In 2003, the accusations began that she was using performance-enhancing drugs, including at the Olympics. She denied the allegations vehemently, and the country readily came to her defense. Still, the allegations continued The allegations eventually led to an investigation by the FBI into a lab in San Francisco that was manufacturing the drugs that could fool drug tests. Jones told the feds she did not take anything illegal, but finally by 2007, her house of cards came crashing down. She would make a plea deal with investigators and be sentenced to six months in prison. But before she served her sentence, she held a press conference in order to address both her detractors and supporters and did what few others do. Over the many years of my life, as an athlete in the sport of track and field, you have been fiercely loyal and supportive towards me. Even more loyal and supportive than words can declare has been my family and especially my dear mother who stands by my side today. And so it is with a great amount of shame that I stand before you and tell you that I have betrayed your trust. I want all of you to know that today I pled guilty to two counts of making false statements to federal agents. Making these false statements to federal agents was an incredibly stupid thing for me to do. And I am responsible fully for my actions. I have no one to blame but myself for what I have done. To you, my fans, including my young supporters, the United States Track and Field Association, My closest friends, 
my attorneys, and the most classy family a person could ever hope for, namely my mother, my husband, my children, my brother and his family, my uncle, and the rest of my extended family. I want you to know that I have been dishonest. And you have the right to be angry with me. I have let them down. I have let my country down. And I have let myself down. I recognize that by saying that I'm deeply sorry, it might not be enough and sufficient to address the pain and the hurt that I've caused you. Therefore, I want to ask for your forgiveness for my actions, and I hope you can find it in your heart to forgive me. In an increasingly self-absorbed, yet self-loathing world, Marion Jones did what few ever do, truly apologize. It was a refreshing reminder that true personal freedom begins with three critical words. It's my fault. It is, without a doubt, the most famous death in human history. And among all the emblems of the world, none is admired, glorified, and worshipped as the cross. Some say it was the biggest miscarriage of justice of all time. It's, it's important to understand the brutality of the day and, and, and what they did to this guy who did absolutely nothing. Jesus was innocent, not just of committing a, a, a crime punishable by death, but he was completely innocent. How is it that the death of a nondescript teacher from 2,000 years ago still affects the world today? You cannot write a more tragic story. It's impossible. He carried no political power. He held no official position within his own religion. Yet he managed to gain the attention of oppressed citizens, the outcast, the downtrodden, the forgotten, then religious officials, soldiers, and eventually the Roman Empire itself. Oh, the people love him. He's known as a healer and an exorcist. He's talking about the kingdom of God. He's implying that there will be regime change. He's approachable on a human level. His death could only be described as a conspiracy of the highest order. He said that the Holy Spirit would descend and convince the world that he was innocent. Accusations are plentiful. But who is ultimately responsible? Much research of the historical Jesus has focused on this question of who was responsible for Jesus' death. By whose hand did the founder of the world's largest religion suffer and die? The Matcast proudly presents a limited podcast series with an investigation of scripture and experts, all in an effort to answer one question. Who killed Jesus. Thank you for joining us for episode four of Who Killed Jesus? My name is Matt Anderson. Over the last few weeks, we have done a rather intensive investigation into who is at fault for killing the most innocent man 
whoever lived. We began with the most obvious suspect, the Roman soldiers who beat Jesus beyond recognition and nailed him to the cross upon which the Savior eventually died. Then we widened our approach to the only one who could give the order for the beatings and death penalty to occur, the Roman governor Pontius Pilate. But even a cursory reading of scripture necessitates that Pilate would not have gone to such lengths on his own. External pressure was applied by the religious leaders of Jerusalem to the point that Pilate was put into a political corner. Jesus' own countrymen saw him as imminently dangerous and in need of the ultimate punishment. So that settles the matter, doesn't it? Well, to me, it begs the question, why would the God-man feel the need to be here among us in the first place? Do we go the route of Greek mythology that man is some plaything to the gods and the deities occasionally disguise themselves in flesh out of maybe sheer boredom or a self-aggrandizing need to be admired, doling out punishments to those who don't meet their expectations? Not in the least. For as we will see, there is something far more cosmic, far more eternal at play. People often wonder why the cross was necessary at all. Why did Jesus do what he did? Why didn't God the Father simply just forgive, as if to wave a magic wand and instantly forgive his creation? Why was Jesus' death so severe if God the Father is who he is? Well, it revolves around two main concepts. First, there is what sin does. And secondly, there is who God is. So to fully understand Jesus' entrance onto the world stage, we must return to the beginning. We must go back to Eden to see the entrance of sin into God's created beings and created world. Genesis 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, 
and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. To truly understand the spiritual implications of what happened that day, just outside of Jerusalem, we have to understand the horrific nature of sin and what it does. What was the original sin? There have been many great theological papers and books on the subject, and they all no doubt contribute beautifully to our understanding. But to me, at its root, sin carries one prevailing message. I will be God. This was the temptation of the serpent. If you eat this fruit, you will be like him. He was sowing distrust in the relationship between creation and creator. And that relationship would then continually be disrupted because of the response of the created. Adam and Eve wanted to be God. And sin entered the spiritual atmosphere of our world. And sin thoroughly and completely destroys everything in its path. Romans 5.12 Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. This is what sin does. It demands to be God. It demands that we overthrow our maker and creator and make ourselves the object of worship. The connection between God and humanity was fractured. Now man desired to be God. We as sinful human beings would find God to be our biggest obstruction to our happiness. We want to be God. We want to be in control. We know how to find happiness and satisfaction in our life. This cannot be accomplished unless we push God as far away from us as possible. Ephesians 2 verse 1, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. See, sin ultimately makes us enemies with God. Here is R.C. Sproul. The Bible says that we are not by nature simply indifferent to God, but we hate Him. The desires of our hearts are only evil 
continuously. We don't want God in our thinking. We don't want to think about Him. We don't want Him to press the imprint of His general revelation into our brains. Stay away. Go away. Sin makes us enemies, but secondly, sin also makes us debtors. It never delivers what is promised and leaves us with a load of debt and shame over our choices. We have broken God's law, and now a spiritual debt must be paid. But it is a debt I cannot pay back. Have you ever had that feeling in the middle of the night? If you find yourself in financial difficulty, you wake up seemingly from a restful sleep, and the first prevailing thought is how much you owe. And how in the world are you ever going to pay it back? And then you realize you cannot go back to sleep because of the weight of debt. That's the spiritual weight that sin brings upon us. We cannot make up for the sin we have committed. We cannot pay it back. In fact, the evil interest upon it only seems to grow on a daily basis. We can't make up for it. This is what sin does, and it has eternal consequences. Here again, R.C. Sproul. We are debtors who cannot pay their debts. I am completely helpless to pay that debt. There is nothing I can do to atone for my own sins. And people say, you Christians worry too much about sin. After all, to err is human and to forgive is divine. And everyone's entitled to one mistake. We have entitlement programs of every conceivable kind. And we include it now, an entitlement program of sin before a righteous God. God gives you the title to commit one sin. Yeah? Soul that sins shall die. One sin is all it takes to send you to hell forever. Romans 6.23 reminds us that the wages, proper payment for sin, is death. This is what sin does. Sin makes us enemies with God. Sin makes us debtors. But then also, in addition to what sin does, we have to examine who God is. First, God is holy. He is the absolute personification of everything beautiful and perfect. Sin cannot exist in his presence. Here is Billy Graham. You'll never understand the Old Testament with all of its blood sacrifices. You'll never understand the Bible. You'll never understand the death of Christ on the cross till you understand that God is a holy and righteous and pure God and he cannot even look upon evil. God Almighty will not coexist with sin. Not only because sin demands complete allegiance, but more because God is so holy and perfect in every way. 
Sin must be dealt with by him. It must be obliterated like a cancer in the body. God is also just. He is the almighty, perfect judge in all matters. Like any good judge, he will not be bribed, coerced, blackmailed, or unduly influenced by outside parties. He has no bias and cannot be bought off. He will neither be swayed by tears nor impressed by accomplishments. He judges rightly because he is right. And part of that judgment is his handling of sin. Because of his perfection, sin must be dealt with appropriately. It must be punished. Cancer cannot be treated with ointments and bandages, something much more severe is necessary. How much more dealing with the horrific nature of sin? Again, R.C. Sproul. Because the judge of all of the earth is holy. The judge of all of the earth is righteous. The judge of all of the earth is perfect in the administration of his justice. If a judge sits on a bench and excuses every lawbreaker who is brought before him, never sentence anyone to punishment, such a judge is not just. Such a judge is not good. If God is holy and God is righteous and there's no if to it, since God is righteous, not only will he punish sin, he must punish sin. Not only Adam and Eve, but all of us, because of our actions, because of our willful choices, because we indebted ourselves with sin and selfishness, because we made God an enemy, and demanded that he get out of our way in our pursuit of fulfillment, we have placed ourselves in his judicial crosshairs. We have absolutely no defense, no explanation for our choices. And besides, he is the Almighty One, and we cannot stop him. We deserve nothing but destruction and death. It is easy for us to morally compare ourselves to who we consider the worst among us. We find what we consider to be the most heinous in our society, and we use them as a measuring rod to temporarily relieve us of our guilt and shame. But our guilt will not be assuaged. Our debt remains. Romans 1.18 for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without 
excuse. This is not the feel-good preaching that many opt for these days, but the wrath of God is a very real thing. All of us deserve it. All of us are without excuse. Inherently, we all know He is real, that He exists, and He will not idly sit by and allow sin to have its way among His creation. The agnostic knows it, the atheist knows it, the God-defying know it, and the churchgoer knows it. We all have it coming. We have chosen sides against God and have become subject to his wrath. So what shall the perfect judge do? He cannot cease being God by suddenly ignoring sin. So all must eternally perish, correct? Blood must be shed. Hebrews 9.22 reminds us, Indeed, under the law almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Blood would have to be shed. But not our blood. God previewed it in the Old Testament when he rescued his people from the hand of Egypt. A lamb without any spots or defects would be killed and its blood spread on the doorpost of the home so that the death angel would pass over the home and leave the people safe. Later, a spotless lamb would be slaughtered symbolically as a substitute for the people's sins. But this was only temporary and fleeting, something permanent lie in store. How surprising that God's Son, Jesus, would become the ultimate and last substitute. This meant that he would live a sinless life on earth to be the spotless lamb to be sacrificed. Only he could satisfy the wrath of God adequately. Here is Alistair Begg. The message of the cross establishes the gravity of sin says that the story of humanity is the story of man's rebellion and man's alienation and man's brokenness. And the death of Jesus and the picture that is then given to us in the Bible causes us to ponder and then to proclaim that it took the death of God's perfect Son to deal with my sinful life, with my alienation, and with my brokenness, and with my rebellion. On the cross, Jesus would endure the wrath of God that had been stored in God's cup of judgment. In his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus intensely prays to the Father about drinking from this figurative cup of wrath. Adrian Rogers tells us more. He knows what he is about to face. And he says, Father, Father, if, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Now, the cup is a metaphor. 
for suffering. There was a cup that Jesus must drink from. What was in that cup? Well, if we were to pass that cup through this congregation today, and you would put all of your sin in that cup, every dirty thought, every foul word, every selfish deed, every lie, everything that you've ever done would be in that cup. And then go back through time from Adam and Eve up until the time when the trumpet shall sound and time shall be no more. And let them put that in that cup, put rape in that cup, put sodomy in that cup, put arson in that cup, put lasciviousness in that cup, put drug addiction in that cup, put demon worship in that cup, put vileness and filth in that cup, slimy, filthy. And Jesus knows that because he is going to be a substitute, him who knew no sin, God hath made to be sin for us. He must take our sin. He must put those pure and holy lips upon that filthy cup, and he must drink it down. He will not become a sinner, but he will become sin. He, the Lord Jesus Christ, will suffer that emotional suffering. Certainly not to minimize the physical torment and pain Jesus endured in episode one of this series, but the true pain of the cross was not the crown of thorns or the lashes upon his back or the nails in his hands and feet. The brutality of the cross is found in Jesus taking the cup of God's wrath meant for us and drinking every last drop of it upon himself. He took on every theft, murder, lie, affair, lustful thought, and so on upon himself. There is a theological term called propitiation when it comes to God's wrath. Some believe that word propitiation, that it means appeasement or deflection. But author Jerry Bridges offers maybe a better use of the word. He believes the word more means exhausted. In other words, Jesus exhausted the wrath of God. Jesus endured the true pain of the cross. In becoming our perfect substitute, he exhausted the wrath of God himself upon himself. I know our world is especially obsessed with pronouns these days. So listen to these pronouns from Isaiah chapter 53. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our 
transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. Pastor Greg Laurie sums this up by reminding us of God the Father's role at the crucifixion, as well as getting to the crux of the underlying question of this podcast series. God was the master of ceremonies at the cross. Isaiah 53, 10 says, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. It was God's will. Romans 8, 32 says, God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Romans 3.25 says, God put Christ forward by his blood to be received by faith. Why do I bring this up? Because sometimes the, the issue comes up, who killed Jesus, right? And sometimes anti-Semites will say, the Jews killed Jesus. Others might assert the Romans killed Jesus. Let me say something that might shock you. Ready for it? God the Father killed Jesus, in effect. He sent his son to the cross. Oh, sure, the religious leaders played a part in it. Sure, the Romans played a part in it. But if you want to get real technical, I killed Jesus. You killed Jesus. Because it was our sins that put him on that cross. So there you have it. Unlike the world's method of constant blame and deflection, I cannot blame society, inequities, injustices, a dysfunctional or even abusive family, or any other setback or disablement in my life. I killed Jesus. I have repeated the sins of Adam and Eve and billions of others and now must realize that it was my sin that put him there. I killed Jesus. It's my fault. Case closed, right? Well, there is but one more glorious layer for us to explore and embrace before we can begin to fully understand the actions of the Savior. After all, 
if Jesus is God, who actually kills God? You've been listening to Who Killed Jesus, a MattCast limited series and a production of Monumental Ministries. For more information or to listen to our archives, go to mattministry.com. Thanks for listening.